Well, good morning. Very happy to be here with you all. Get my stuff situated here. Mike, good? Mike, check. Good. Everybody hear me well? All right. Well, it's both a privilege and an honor to be walking with you all today. As Kate said, my name is Candace Hinkle. As you can maybe gather, I am full of energy. I always have been. That's my mascotting years. I smile because that is the lens God has given me to see the world. And I love a good, hearty laugh. My family will attest you can't take me anywhere without me talking to someone because God has also created in me to be an extrovert. And I love strangers. As you heard, I have a very handsome husband of soon-to-be 22 years this Friday. Isn't that awesome? There we go. There we go. And I have three wonderful children. Our oldest son is 25, lives in Peru, Indiana, works for Cole Hardwood, our local lumber company in Logansport. Our youngest daughter is 15, will be a sophomore in high school, and watch out, she's about to get her driver's permit. And our middle son is 18, heading to Purdue in the fall. He will be studying chemistry. He will be living in the Lutheran fraternity on campus, already in the fraternity. He's going to be a frat guy. And... He will be singing with the Purdue Varsity Glee Club. In my former career of approximately 20 years, I was a classroom teacher. And the year I discerned a call to ministry, I had the absolute best class ever. Now, teachers, you will understand this. I had the class that when you asked them to get out a pencil... They already had one out. It was an absolutely wonderful class. Yet, yet God was working on my heart in a way I had never experienced before. Throughout that school year, God began using me and putting me in ministry situations I never thought possible. So with lots of prayer, Lots of encouragement from my family and colleagues. I put in for a sabbatical year from teaching. The plan was I would attend seminary the following school year and test the waters, so to speak, to see if God was really calling me to do that. And so I stand before you today, not a graduate, but three years later, In September, I will begin my final year of seminary classes with an eye on graduation in May of 2023 with a Master's of Divinity. Now, I tell you all that because there's a part in there I'd like to share with you. Leaving my classroom, leaving behind my beloved profession, and my adored colleagues, some who are here today, was about like this. God, uh, you want me to do what? Uh, 
God, God, are you talking to the right person? Because answering this call from God was about like staring down into a deep, dark, black hole and God telling me to jump. Please pray with me. God of all creation, I pray that the words of this sermon are words that honor and glorify your name. I pray that this sermon will give light to your holy word and expand the hearts and minds of all, including myself. Amen. As we get into the word this week, let's do a quick recap of what we've learned over the last few weeks from Pastor Stacy. Slide number two, please. This will help us understand how we got to our reading today and where we might be going. In Genesis chapter 5, Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, is God's attempt to get things on the right track. From Seth, we are introduced to Enoch, Lamech, and finally, Noah. Noah's name, if you remember, means rest, yes. And it is through Lamech, Noah's father, that Lamech says that Noah will undo the curse God has put on the ground. In Genesis chapter 6, Noah, the ark, and the reason for the flood are revealed. According to a recap, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. As bad as we think that things are today, apparently they were much worse then. And God's heart was deeply troubled. We take one final moment to remember here that God has always worked through persuasion, not coercion. In the instance of Noah, the ark, and the flood, God had to act because even God could not turn, could not persuade the events back around. God did not abandon creation in the case of Noah, the ark, and the flood. God saved it. Our reading today picks up where you all left off last week. We're at the end of chapter 8. Noah, his family, and all the animals have just gotten off the ark. God is beginning the work of recreation. Now, the teacher in me is about to come out in full circle. For a little fun here, I want you to put yourself in Noah's shoes. You just got off an ark that you've been on for almost a year, surrounded by what one scholar would say almost 45,000 animals. You've only been around seven other human beings. Slide number three, please. What is the first thing you do after getting off the ark? Go ahead. You can talk about it. Talk with your person. What's the first thing you do after getting off the ark? All right, now I have to tell you here, with permission from my husband, I'm going to tell you what he said, and I hope it's okay. He said, when I posed this question to him as I was preparing all this, 
I said, I think I'm going to ask him this question. I said, so I, so I looked at him and I said, what is the first thing you do when you, after getting off the ark, when you get off the ark? And he said, pee. Apparently, my husband thinks Noah's bladder is the size of a camel's stomach. Slide number four, please. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings. The first thing, according to Scripture, with the use of the word then, is to say that Noah worshipped the Lord. Now, I have a good friend who was a linguistics major, and she reminded me that the use of the words thens and ands is used commonly in narrative storytelling in order to connect sequences of events. First I did this, then I did that, next I did this, then I did that. The point is, we don't know every detail of what Noah did after exiting the ark. For all we know, maybe he did pee. I don't know. But, slide number five, please. The key point is, the most important thing to know is that Noah worshipped the Lord after exiting the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord where he offered sacrifices of burnt offerings for his sins. Now something curious got a hold of me while I was studying this passage. And so I offer you this question. Slide number six. Was this the first animal sacrifice known in Genesis? Now I hear that you have small groups that meet. And if you're watching this online later and want to do some research... I'll give you a hint. Look at what our early church fathers say and pay attention to the word skin in Genesis chapter 3, 21. See what you think, and I hope it leads to some good discussions because like a good teacher, I'm not telling you the answer. Noah offered sacrifice for his sins. Noah non-perfect Noah, as you are certainly here next week, offers a sacrifice of repentance for his sins. Now, I imagine Noah here falling on his knees in his ragged and torn clothing, worshiping the Lord with his head bowed, his bloody hands from the sacrifices thrust up and outward, giving his full self to the Lord. Now, maybe Hollywood has gotten into my head a little bit here and, and the movies have made me think of Noah in this way. But either way, I want to pause here. And I want to do things a little different than what you all are used to. I want to go ahead and ask you this question now. How do the actions of Noah, building an altar to the Lord, directly after getting off the ark, lead us to Jesus? And especially, how does this show us Jesus at work in our lives? Now, during the year of discernment for me, I read a book called... Yeah, you see that? I kept you in suspense. I read a book called Mistaken Identity. 
It was written by the families of Laura Van Rijn and Whitney Sarek. If you are from Indiana, you may remember this story. Some of you, because I don't know you, may even be personally involved. A Taylor University van was struck on a highway and five students passed. The lives of Laura and Whitney, who looked very much alike, were confused in the hospital for over five weeks. The family who thought they buried their daughter really didn't. And the family who thought their daughter was alive really wasn't. As I read this book, something struck me that still drives my inner soul today. In the midst of the tragedy of burying their daughter, the Sarek family took time each day to close their blinds, put notes on the door to their home, and sit together with Scripture and the Lord before doing anything else. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, they took time to praise the Lord. Jesus Christ came to this earth for the redemption of our sins. He went to the cross willingly because of love. Love here drives the Sarek family, and love here drives Noah. For Noah to build an altar and worship the Lord after what could only have been one of the most scariest, most anxiety-written boat rides anyone could ever partake can only point to love. The point is, slide please, in your own life, in your own suffering, is it possible to take time to metaphorically build an altar to God and offer your whole self to him, no matter what the circumstances are that are surrounding your life? The Sarics believed and were coming to accept that their beloved daughter, Whitney, was gone forever. Grief had overcome them, and yet, Yet they took the mornings to come together as a family and worship the Lord with song and scripture. Noah built an altar to the Lord after exiting the ark. Both are powerful testimonies to how God can and will work in your life. It's a powerful testimony to the importance of having Jesus Christ as your foundation to function throughout your days. Slide number eight, please. Genesis 9, 2 through 3 from the NIV. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, as I studied scripture for today, 
I had an aha moment. A moment where the light bulb came on. A moment where my childhood thoughts were replaced by adult understanding. Now, maybe some of you are with me here. As a kid, when I heard the story of Noah and the ark, I happily just placed the animals on the ark. I never questioned people and animals being together. But as an adult, well, I've always wondered why the lions and the bears didn't eat Noah. Slide number nine, please. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And this comes from Genesis chapter 2. If in Genesis chapter 2, man is giving names to the animals, then man has a relationship with them, and they with him. The animals are not afraid of Noah and his family. If I could be so inclined to say the animals are living in tandem, in peace with Noah. Noah isn't scared or worried about being eaten or harmed by them, and neither are the animals by Noah. But after the flood, after the ark, God reverses this. Now the animals will be fearful and dreadful of humans. And why? Because now humans have been given the green light, so to speak, to eat said animals. This is the point where God changes not only the state of man with animals, but also changes man's diet. This is the point where man becomes not just a herbivore, but an omnivore. Man can now eat both plants and meat. Man now hunts the animal, and the animals, so to speak, now hunt the man. Slide 10, please. The key point here is that man now has domain over all of the earth, including the plants and the animals. So now I ask you this question again. Why is this important, and how does this relate back to Jesus Christ in our lives? Well, one of my favorite points of Jesus' ministry is found in Matthew 21. When Jesus storms into the temple and he starts angrily walking up to tables and benches and just flipping them over, Jesus was mad. And the religious leaders are not properly managing their resources. And Jesus says to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. In our own lives, we are to be stewards of the earth. We have been given governance to bring the material world and all its varied elements into the service of God and the good of mankind. Created in the image of God, Adam and Eve were to use the earth's vast resources in the service of both God and themselves. Each and every one of us have been deemed the caretakers of this earth. We hold sway over all the earth 
And we, bearing God's image, bear a responsibility to act as God would. Does God misuse his creation? No. Is God unwise in his management of resources? No. Is God ever cruel or selfish or wasteful? No. Then neither should we be. Slide 11, please. Now we keep going in scripture here, and my final point is this. God's covenant is binding and everlasting. As with all covenants, you have a sign of the covenant. I.e., with Abraham, it was circumcision. With Noah, it's the rainbow. Slide 12, please. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy life. When God called Noah to build the ark in Genesis 6, 18, he used the word covenant pronounced berit in Hebrew. Slide 13, please. From chapter 9, verses 8 through 17 in the NIV, the English word covenant is used eight times. Here you see on this slide all the different forms of the Hebrew word covenant written in this section. Now notice I have underlined berit, but there's other things added to it. And well, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't even pronounce those for you. So somebody afterwards is a Hebrew scholar, want to pronounce them for me, that'd be great. But a covenant is a binding agreement. According to Brett Berger in his Theology Thursday explanation of covenant, in the ancient world, a covenant was similar to what we in the modern world would call a contract, a treaty, or a will. Each covenant established the basis of a relationship, conditions of that relationship, promises and conditions of the relationship, and consequences if those conditions were unmet. The covenant between God and Noah is given here in direct terms. God will never again use a flood to destroy the earth or to destroy all living things. Period. God is finished with world-killing floods. The language used here is of a legally binding contract. God is structuring an official agreement that he will bind himself to for all of earth's history. And the sign of this covenant is the rainbow. Next slide, please. Genesis 9, 13. Maybe. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, 9.14. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds. Again, repetition in 9.16. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. There is only one sign in the sky that has spiritual meaning. The rainbow. 
Now, some English translations will use the word bow here instead of the full word rainbow. And the word bow is same word for the battle bow. The bow is a weapon that brings death and destruction. The following excerpt from McCarthy's sermon is most interesting and inspiring. I really like this. In Near Eastern literature, there are often deities depicted with bow wielding destruction. And the Old Testament pictures God like that. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a warrior. Habakkuk 3.9, his bow is made bare. Zechariah 9.14, his arrows are lightning. God is depicted as a warrior with a bow. And in the flood, God the warrior shot his lightning arrows, pierced the earth, the earth broke open, exploded, and then the sky fell, and certainly with its arrows of lightning and destruction. He, God, bent his bow in wrath. But from now on, God has hung up his bow, and he hung it in the sky where everybody can see it. God hung his bow as his sign of his mercy toward a world of sinners. I'd like to end with this. Noah building the ark, surviving the flood, building an altar of sacrifice to the Lord, gaining domain over all the earth, and finally the Lord making a covenant, promising never again to flood the earth in a catastrophic, life-ending way, all leads back to how God works in our lives. Think about Noah here. None of this could possibly have been easy. Yet God... God was patient with Noah and waited for Noah to say yes to building the boat, yes to finishing the boat, and yes to getting on the boat. God works through persuasion, not coercion. Now, do you remember my own story in the beginning? Um, uh, God, you want me to do what? Listening to the Lord at work in my own life <laughs> is not easy. And well, frankly, it just seems so much easier for me to be in the driver's seat of my life rather than handing over control to the Lord. Anyone getting me here? Anyone relating? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to save all of us. Jesus' death and resurrection, it wasn't for nothing. Your life, each and every one of you. Jesus died on that cross for you. And Jesus rose from the grave to show each of us that life continues beyond the grave. 
as hard as it is, God is waiting for you, trying to persuade each of you to say yes to whatever it is God is asking you to do. Jesus came not for his message to end with you and me. Each of us are called in our own professions, through our own gifts and talents, to step out of our comfort zones, build our own arcs, and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances or the outcome. Sometimes, my friends, you just have to trust and jump in the black hole. Or in Noah's case, do the ark thing. Amen. Final slide, please.